we first met Tim uh, way back when we were doing some outreach, some evangelism. Um, and uh, so I've known Tim for a long time. I stayed in his house, met his wife. And, uh, and so we probably lost touch uh, over in the middle years, but reconnected in recent years as Tim has been uh, working with Compassion and doing a great job. And so um, it's a great pleasure to have him here with us today. And so I'd like us to give him a really big warm hand and, uh, as he comes and speaks to us. Thanks, mate. Well, thank you very much. Great to be with you, it really is. I've been looking forward to coming to Hope Church. I get to, to go all over the country, really. Last week I was in Dartford, in Kent, and uh, I was with a church called Net Church, and they have a partnership already with Compassion in um, Ethiopia, and uh, I think we saw about 67 kids sponsored last Sunday, taking it to about 260 kids, which is wonderful over the last three or four years, and they're passionate about that, and uh, uh, Two weeks um, ago, we were all out uh, in um, Ethiopia, uh, visiting some of those projects, ministering in the church there, seeing their kids, and uh, just a, a heartbreaking trip in many ways. It's always quite moving, always very inspirational, but uh, on this occasion, we were out there just after uh, the landslide in Addis Ababa. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that on the big Koshi rubbish dump, and... Um, uh, I think 170 people lost their lives and because many people live on the rubbish dump. Uh, that's the nature of poverty. It, it drives you to places where, you know, it's just desperate. People scavenge for something to eat or something to, to sell. And uh, because the government were just constantly loading more and more uh, 4,000 tons a day, of waste onto this thing, it all became very unstable and a whole section of it, it's like a big mountain really, it just came down upon so many of the homes and the little dwellings and uh, including 20 homes of children that are part of compassion as well and so there were families that lost everything and very sadly we lost three of our precious kids, Meseret and um, Eshetu and uh, Melehan. And uh, it just broke our hearts, you know. And one of the sponsors, in actual fact, was the sponsor of Meseret, a little girl of six years of age. You know, he's the one who takes people out of the ashes and sets them as princes. And over and over again in Compassion, we see children being lifted out of poverty, lifted out of the ash heap, you know, and set on high because they become all that God wants them to be. But... But other times, you know, kids don't always make it. And for these children, he lifted them out of that ash heap. And he set them on high in heaven. And we don't understand the mind of God, uh, or we'd be his counselor. Uh, but he knows what he's doing. His ways are higher than ours, you know. Uh, but what he does call us to do is to have a heart for the poor, uh, to challenge injustice, whether it's here in Winchester or whether it's to the ends of the earth, whether it's in Rwanda or wherever it might be. And uh, speak up for those who have no voice for themselves, the poor, the needy, the marginalized. And uh, today you have a, an incredible opportunity. I know you're involved in so many things already and some of you already sponsor. But as a church, you have a great opportunity to partner with some of the poorest people in Rwanda, a nation that uh, is doing so well right now. But back in 94, you know that it was 
the scene of a, a really awful genocide where a million people died in nearly three months and just horrible stories. I've been out there and uh, met people who lost their whole family um, in this uh, hatred that there was in the nation at that time and just being stirred up and uh, family turning against family, neighbor against neighbor and and uh, just an, an evil situation. But thank God that the church rose up at that time and became a voice for reconciliation uh, in the whole nation and incredible prayers for reconciliation and a turning back to each other has happened. And, uh, and yes, there's still poverty, but there's great development. And you can be a part of seeing change come uh, to Rwanda and maybe even going out there sometime and, and visiting. I believe some folks have already done that just in recent weeks. And, uh, so, great opportunity. And to sponsor a child, to release a child from poverty in Jesus' name. So, Compassion has been going for uh, since 1952, and during that time, a million kids have come through our programs. Currently, 1.8 million children are registered on uh, over 7,000 projects in uh, 26, 25 developing nations. And their lives are being transformed because somebody like you is saying, I want to invest in a child and in their family and see change come. Because when you invest in a child, their family changes. Then the next family changes in that community. Then the next family. And very soon, it leads to community transformation. So that's what we're about. We, we want to see the kingdom of God grow. We want to see the church grow as well. When I was in Ethiopia the other week, I went to a church that was about 2,000 people. The last time I went there was seven years ago, and it was 50 people. And uh, over the next 12, 24 months, they opened a compassion project there. And so many people saw the love of God in action, both beneficiaries but also community, that they came and gave their lives to Jesus. And families were getting saved, and, and that's become, you know, the, uh, the hub of, of that community now, the church rising up. So it's not just about a child's picture on a fridge. This is about growth, kingdom growth. It's about the church growing. It's about God's kingdom coming uh, to reign and to rule in those nations. So you're part of something that is so big. So thank you uh, for what you're doing. It's amazing. If you have a Bible, just turn to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. As you're looking for that, uh, I wonder uh, what you think poverty is. People have lots of different perceptions in life. And uh, I guess if we went around the room, we'd have all kinds of different perceptions. It reminds me of the story of this general and his lieutenant who are coming home from the war, and they get to the railway station, and it's absolutely packed, and the train is packed, but they find a carriage, and there's two seats left in this carriage, and it's opposite this beautiful young lady and her elderly grandmother. And they sit down, and a uh, little bit of small talk, then the train moves out of the station, and after a while, it goes through a tunnel, and it's pitch black in the carriage, for about 10 seconds, and the only sound that could be heard is the sound of a kiss and the sound of a slap. And everyone in the carriage had their own perception of what happened. You see, the young lady thought to herself, uh, well, I'm flattered that the lieutenant kissed me, but I'm really embarrassed that grandmother hit him. Grandmother thinks to herself, well, I'm really aggravated that that young man kissed my granddaughter, but I'm glad she had the courage to retaliate. The general thinks to himself, fair play, to my lieutenant for kissing that young lady because she is rather beautiful, but why did she hit me instead? 
And the young lieutenant was the only one who knew what happened. You see, in that brief moment of darkness, he had the opportunity to kiss a pretty girl and to slap his general. <laughs> Different perceptions. I wonder what your perception is of poverty. You see, as I travel around, some people say, oh, well, you know, this whole thing of poverty, it's, it can't be that bad. Not in the 21st century. Not with all the technological advances that we have in life. How can it be such a, a bad thing? It's just the charities hyping it up to get more money. Uh, another perception is this. Well, it's their own fault. Charity begins at home. So we need to attend to the needs in our nation. You know, if their governments weren't so corrupt, there's enough food for everybody. It's their own fault. Another one is this. It's God's judgment. You know, we can't get in the way of that. These are the consequences of a nation turning away from God. So, you know, they have to learn their lesson. I've heard that one as well. Another one is this. Well, it's too big. It's too massive. We keep throwing money at it and nothing ever changes. You know, so what's the point? Another one is this. Yes, it's big, but we can do something about it. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And at Compassion, we believe that we can see poverty eradicated one child at a time, because a child, when you give them hope, when you give them a future, they will begin to change their circumstances. They are the ones who will rebuild the ancient ruins. They are the oaks of righteousness that will rise up, uh, as Isaiah says, and change, bring change and transformation around their situation. So uh, I don't know what your perception of poverty is, but today we can make a difference. Some people think that poverty is, you know, lack of basic shelter or lack of food or clothing or a job or whatever. But actually, if you drill it right the way down, poverty is a lack of hope. It's a lack of option. It's a lack of choice. It's, a, it's being like one side of a line that's been drawn that said, you're rubbish, you're worthless. And when you're surrounded by rubbish, when you're surrounded by sewerage and mess and whatever, that's what you're going to begin to think. This is what it was like for my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. It's never going to change. There's no hope. There's no future. I can't get out of this. And that's why the poor are in that condition. That's why there is such a lack of self-esteem and self-worth with those who have nothing. But we can actually help someone to cross the line so that they can bring others across the line as well. I wonder if you'll do that today in Jesus' name. If you've got your Bible, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And verse 25, Luke's Gospel 10, 25, and uh, let's read from there. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that this is a place where you are, where your presence is. You said when you welcome a child in my name, you welcome me. And uh, Lord, we want to open our hearts to children today. We want to open our hearts to the poor today. We want to open our hearts to what you have to say to us from your word. So God, please would you speak to us. Please would you uh, do something in each one of us. Yes, Lord, we want you to meet our needs, and we want you to make us whole, but we want to be in a place where we can be a blessing, where we can reach out to others and make a difference in their lives as well. So, Father, would you do your work in us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, that's a great story. It's a story that we know very well, even if you've not been a Christian long, even if you've not been to church at all, you've probably heard it somewhere, maybe at school, uh, maybe on the TV or, or whatever, but it's a story uh, that's well known. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, we call it. And, and here's these uh, three different guys, three different perceptions, I guess, three different responses to the need that they see before them. One man goes on a journey on the way, he's beaten up, he's robbed, he's uh, left for dead, bleeding, dying, and he needs a neighbor. He needs a friend to help him. Well, a priest comes down the road, and you think, well, he's a religious guy. He's bound to help, but he gets there, and he thinks, well, no, uh, you know, I don't want to get involved with this. I've got to get to church. I've got to go and represent uh, the people before God and God before the people, so I'm sure, you know, God will send somebody else. I'll, I'll, I'll just keep going. Uh, and then another person comes along. He's another religious guy. He's a Levite. He doesn't even cross the road because he sees blood and he thinks, I can't get near any blood. It will contaminate me. I've, uh, it will con- corrupt me. I've already begun the ceremonial cleansings because I've got to do the sacrifices at the temple. I can't get involved, but I'm sure God will send somebody else. Well, somebody else does come along, and you could forgive this guy for actually walking by on the other side because he was a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. It wasn't a good mix. And so uh, you could understand if he was able to walk uh, uh, past this guy, but he doesn't do that. He's the one who responds differently, and he reaches out and makes a difference to this guy. Martin Luther King said this, that the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan turns it around and he says, if I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Now that's a good question to ask, isn't it, church? If we don't stop and get involved, what will happen to them? You see, church isn't about us coming together to worship God and have a great time and hear what he says to us. Church is about dispersed church as well, into the highways, into the byways, into the situations of of normal everyday life in Winchester, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the town, in the coffee shops, wherever it might be, in our uh, streets and in our communities. How do we somehow bring the love of Jesus into those communities? If we don't get involved, what will happen to them? This generation is responsible for this generation of non-believers, 
This generation of church, we have a responsibility. What are you doing? What are you uh, making yourself available for to be able to reach out into this community? Jesus tells this story to illustrate what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as I look at that, I think, well, this is a discipleship issue. This is about loving God with every part of my being. And this morning, let's just take a few moments just to look at how the Good Samaritan does just that. How does he love God in all these different ways? Four things this morning I want to share with you. Okay, here's number one. Number one, he chose to see the need. He chose to see the need. The man was moved in his soul. Something You know, uh, as he saw this guy who was in desperate need, something touched his heart. Something touched his soul. And when he saw him, it says, he took pity on him. He didn't close his eyes to the need like the other two did and like so many people do today. No, he chose to see the need. Can I tell you, church, that's what Jesus does. He always sees the need. He sees your need today. He sees the crowd, but he sees the individual And you may have come in here today with all kinds of needs in your life. Can I tell you, God's not forgotten you. God sees you, God knows you, and he cares about you so much. And we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to chat with you afterwards. I know there's a team would love to do that. We want you to find your needs met in the Lord Jesus this morning. He sees your need. He knows you. He he knows your name, and he knows where you are. And he cares about you. And for the person who thinks he's forgotten you, he's not forgotten you. He cares about you today. And he's working his purposes out. But he sees the crowd. He sees the individual. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he reaches out to people. Jesus is always seeing the need, whether it's hunger, whether it's loneliness, whether it's sickness, Whether it's death, he sees the need and he meets the need in people's lives. We need to be a people who open our eyes to the needs around us. I wonder what the needs are here in Winchester. I wonder what the needs are in your community. Are your eyes open? Is your uh, spirit open to the voice of the Holy Spirit who wants to lead you into situations where you can be a blessing? You know, uh, as many as the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. We're told that God has works prepared in advance for us to do. These are divine appointments. We need to be living supernaturally day after day, listening to the Holy Spirit who wants to lead us to the broken and the poor and the needy and the marginalized, those who have needs in their life. We need to open our eyes and open our hearts to people. But we need to open our eyes to the needs of our world as well. What desperate news we've heard this week. Terrorist acts, but also this appalling Uh, bombing of children and people in Syria once again, chemical attacks and, uh, and just the horror of that. And how can people do that, even to their own people? I wonder how God feels about these things. We need to see the need and, and what can we do to meet that need? But as we look further afield across the developing world, can I tell you that today 17,000 children will die of easily preventable causes? 17,000 kids. And we heard about the terror attack in, in London, Westminster, and, and Sweden recently, and, and it goes on for a long time hearing that, and rightly so, these are tragedies, these are awful. Can I tell you on that day that 
17,000 kids died of preventable causes, and they didn't make the news. They didn't make the headlines. And the day before that, 17,000 kids died, and the day after that, 17,000 children died. Is that not just as much a tragedy in the eyes of God? 17,000 children. Things like measles and malaria, malnutrition-related causes, diarrhea, whatever it might be. We've talked about that already this morning. We've talked about a billion people going to bed hungry tonight. What about 2.6 billion people in our world? Nearly half the world's population have nowhere to go to the toilet in safety and in dignity in the 21st century. Can I tell you what happens when people don't have access to safe, clean water or they don't have access to a toilet? Can I tell you, church, on a Sunday morning, on Palm Sunday morning, what happens? You see, it's not just a long distance that they've got to walk and and maybe take a 12-year-old girl walking out in a rural area in Uganda or uh, wherever it might be, uh, having to walk five kilometers and it's keeping her out of school, so that's one thing. But maybe on the way back she's vulnerable because she's carrying a heavy load and maybe somebody takes advantage of her and pulls her into the bush and she's violated. Now nobody wants her as a wife. She's soiled. So she's not marriageable. So what happens is the rapist will marry the girl as, a, as an honor marriage. And so now in her adolescence, she's being raped and violated through her teenage years. Maybe by the age of 14, she's got a child. Maybe by the age of 16, she's got another child. Maybe by the age of 18, she's got HIV AIDS. And maybe by 22, she's dead. You boil it back down to what the result was, what the, the origin of that was. It was because she didn't have water readily available. She had to go and get it from some pond. And maybe it was, you know, uh, filthy. Maybe it had worms in it. Maybe it had uh, excrement in it or whatever it might have done. And, and that's what the family had been drinking. So maybe back at home, the baby has been drinking that water and getting sicker and sicker and sicker. You know, with, without a toilet, you know, uh, people, uh, dangerous places, the slums at night, you don't go out to the toilet. You know, and if you do, you risk getting robbed or raped or murdered. I was in Mathari slum with Steve just last year, and 67% of children in that slum have been raped and violated. That's what we saw, wasn't it? It breaks your heart. Because people haven't got a toilet to go to or a tap to turn on. Wow. I've got two toilets, one upstairs, one downstairs. See, that's the reality. 124 million kids not in school. Two million children exploited every year sexually. These are young kids, trafficked and violated in appalling ways. IGM would tell us that there are 36 million uh, people in modern-day slavery working in forced labor or sexual exploitation. Kids working 12, 16 hours a day. People in bonded labor. There's been a debt that has been... Uh, They're having to pay back to some landlord or some factory owner or quarry owner, and it just goes on and on and on, and they never earn enough to be able to pay the debt, and so generations of, of slavery in that family. Listen, we've got to open our eyes to see the needs in the world. Loving God with everything means allowing him to touch our emotions and to saturate our souls with compassion so that when we see broken humanity, the love of Christ wells up and causes us to respond rather than to retreat, to open our eyes in faith rather than to close our eyes in fear. We can bring 
change into somebody's life. Just through simply sharing what we have, we can make a difference. He chose to see the need. Number two, he answered the cry. See, it wasn't enough to see the need and have pity. He chose to answer the cry and do something about it. It's one thing to have faith, but faith without deeds is not faith at all, James tells us. The word says that he went to him. And this time, we need to love God with our minds, not just with our souls, but we need to love God with our minds because when we love God with our minds, it involves a conscious act of the will. It becomes something that we do intentionally. You know, because you can be moved with pity about what you hear or what the Good Samaritan saw, and he could have been very sad and then walked on. You can watch a VT from Comic Relief or, or a compassion video or uh, see a documentary or whatever. You can be moved with pity, but then, you know, the next program comes on. Poldark comes on. It's not even on. Downton Abbey. No, that's not on. Top, top Gear. No, that's not on, really. Well, not in its good form. But, uh, you know, you, you, you go from one program to the next and suddenly we've forgotten what it was all about. We've moved on. Something's happened. The door's knocked. The kids are crying. And we move on and we forget what we were uh, so uh, taken with and so upset about. But, you know, to be loving God with our minds, it involves that conscious act of the will. This is discipleship. It says that he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He brought comfort to the needy man. Proverbs 21.13 says this, If a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Oh, I don't like verses like that, do you? I like the, the nice verses like, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know? Uh, I love those verses that bless me, that minister to me. But then God kind of drops in a few tough ones, doesn't he? If a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Ooh. Oh, that's a bit challenging, God. Don't you care? Don't you love me? Thought you said you saw my needs and, and whatever. Well, God's got a bit of a pattern there. And maybe we need to explore that a little bit more. Maybe we will in just a minute. But the Samaritan was aware of the danger and the inconvenience, but he reached out anyway and he answered the cry. In, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to answer the cry. I'm going to ask you to reach out and do something. Here's number three. He refused to give up. Verse 34, 35 talks about the fact that he didn't just patch him up on the side of the road, but he put him uh, on his donkey and he takes him to an inn where he looks after him. And then when he's got to go off on business, he pays the innkeeper two days wages and says, look after him and if there's any extra expense, I'll reimburse you on my way home. Now here's a guy who didn't just want to make an offering, he wanted to you know, uh, see this guy right through to complete restoration. He wanted to help him uh, the whole way. You know, when we love God with all our strength this time, we will follow through in our commitments by doing whatever it takes. Have you noticed that in life that we often start with good intentions because we get stirred up by something and and then we become half-hearted and and, and we fail to complete the work? Maybe, you know, uh, that's a a word for somebody right now. You're involved in a ministry and, and perhaps, you know, you were so excited at the beginning but you've not seen the fruit that you wanted or maybe there's been some opposition. Maybe there's been some criticism or whatever and you're ready to throw it down. Listen, if God's not told you to put it down, it's not time to put it down, you know? 
Uh, and maybe you need to pick that up again with renewed faith and commitment because the, the breakthrough could be just around the corner. I think of William Wilberforce, who for well over 20 years uh, tried to combat slavery. And uh, he had death threats and opposition and all kinds of things. And he was about to give up. And he writes to his friend John Wesley, who's on his deathbed. And he says, I fear that this work will never happen. I feel that we will never see a breakthrough. And, and Wesley writes back to him and encourages him. If God's put this good work in your heart, don't give up. The breakthrough may be just around the corner. Well, about three months later, Wesley passed away. And about six months later, a bill was passed in Parliament for the abolition of slavery. You see, you never know what God is doing. And, and uh, uh, things take time. I think of um, Florence Nightingale, that, that woman who, who stood up for what she believed. Um, uh, you know, in a man's world of medicine and, and how she uh, just kept on going, uh, speaking up for sanitation and good health and, uh, you know, all of these things. And thank God that she continued in that because we, are the, uh, we have the benefit that, of that even right now in these days, don't we? And, and so many people just kept on going and they didn't give up because they saw something that was greater. Don't give up on what God has put into your heart. Can I encourage you today? Don't give up on that person you've been praying for. Don't give up on that child that is turned away from God, that teenager. I know you want to see that breakthrough, but maybe the breakthrough is, is a little way off, but maybe it's just around the corner. Don't forsake that ministry when uh, uh, the challenges come. Don't give up on that sponsored child because you get financially challenged. You know, give up on something else first, you know? Press through and just as you started well, finish well. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Going back to those statistics earlier on, back in the 80s, we used to say that 40,000 children died every day of preventable causes. 40,000 kids. Then it went to 37,000. Uh, and, and then 31,000. Then 26,000. Then 24,000. And even just two years ago, we were saying 21,000 children dying every day of preventable causes. Now it's 17,000. It's still shocking. But can you see the journey? Can you see how things have changed? In 1981, 52% of the world's population lived in abject poverty. That was living below a dollar a day in those days. It's a dollar ninety now that the World Bank has, has set it at. But could you live at, on a dollar ninety a day? No, I don't think so. Paying your rent, paying your mortgage, you'd never do it. But it's changing. And we can see change happen. There are 250,000 less maternal deaths each year because change is happening. Better um, uh, facilities are happening. Eight million more HIV victims are getting treatment. In the past eight years, 22 countries have cut their rate of those dying of measles. They've cut it in half. And so the list goes on. It's changing all the time. And development experts would say that if we continue at the current trajectory of change, we can see abject poverty eradicated by uh, 2035. That's in our lifetime. We can see it change and we can be a part of that. Things are changing and you can be a part of the difference. Can I share one more thing with you this morning? Is that okay? It's got 28 points. Here's the point number one. So number one, he chose to see the need. He's moved in his soul. Number two, he uh, answered the cry. And uh, it was a, an act of the will, the mind. Uh, the third thing was this. He, he refused to give up. You know, he uh, worked with all his strength to, to, to make this happen. And then number four is this. He was the key to bringing life. The key to bringing life. You see, the, the good Samaritan wasn't hindered by the difference of this man. 
because he had a heart to make a difference to this man. And he was willing to cross the political and the cultural and the social uh, and the racial barriers and prejudices and the fear of the unknown because he saw someone with a need and he realized, I've got the resources to be able to meet that need. Church, when we love God with all our hearts, then nothing that we have will be held back from him. David said this, everything that I've got comes from you anyway. And he just wanted to be a good steward, and, and we're only called to be good stewards. You know, I may have worked hard, I may have saved a little bit of money, but at the end of the day, I'm just taking care of it for God. That's what it's about. And, and, and let's not buy into this, this thing that says, you know, we need more and more in life. You know, we don't need more and more in life. It's great to have and, and, and be blessed. I've got no problem with that, but be blessed to be a blessing. We're only called to be good stewards of everything that we've got, our, our time, our money, our abilities. Everything should be freely available for the Lord to use. If you're a Christian today, then Christ is living in you. You have this treasure in you that just needs to spill out into the lives of other people, whether it's your time, whether it's your energy, whether it's acts of kindness or words of comfort, whatever it might be, pour it out. Be the key to bringing life and hope into someone's situation today. When we love God with all our hearts, that's what we'll do. You know, the priest represented religion and the Levite represented ritual. Can I tell you that God hates both? He's not into religion and he's not into ritual. In fact, the only religion that he loves and sees as pure is, is uh, to, to help widows and orphans in their distress, James tells us. That's the only religion. In Isaiah 58, he, get, uh, 58, he gets really angry with the church at that time who say, God, don't you care about us? Have you forgotten us? Look at us. We've prayed, we've fasted, we've celebrated all the ceremonies, we've done everything that we should, and you've not heard our cry. God gets angry with them. He says, on the day of your fast, you exploit all your workers, you climb on the backs of the poor, you're eager for extra, you're greedy for gain. And he says, is this not the kind of fast that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice to give shelter to the homeless and food to the hungry and not to turn the stranger away. And he says, when you do that, and if you do that, then your light will rise, then your healing will come. If a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. God sees a, a correlation with how we respond to the needs of our world in terms of how we receive from him. As Christians we're called to feel the need of the broken. We're called to kneel beside humanity with humility, to serve and to give. You know, this week we celebrate Easter and we think of Jesus kneeling before his disciples and washing their feet. He's the one who came to serve and give and give his life as a ransom for many. How do we reach out to the broken? How do we wash their feet and serve them? We're called to heal the wounds, physical, emotional, and spiritual. We're called to be dealers of hope, Mother Teresa said this, one of the greatest diseases is to be nobody to anybody. I'm glad I belong to someone. I'm glad I'm loved by someone. So many just lack that love and that care in their lives. And to say to a child, I love you. I'm praying for you. I think you can do this. I think you can become all that God wants you to become is just such an incredible thing. Hope Church, when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he was bringing hope. He was bringing life. You know, they thought it was about conquering the Romans, but actually he had a bigger message in mind. And today, you can be bringers of hope. You may not be riding a donkey, but 
you can take hope to Gikenki, to Kigali, to Rwanda, and you can be bringers of hope into that situation. I remember being in Ethiopia once and being right in this uh, very tough slum. It was a horrible place, really, and the project director wanted to show me the, uh, the home of a little boy just been registered, Yonis, eight years old. We went to this middle of this slum. The rain was pouring down. Everything was running down the streets. And, and I said, which one is his home? And he pointed to the community toilet. He said, that's where he lives. And we went into, you know, uh, one door. There were two doors. And we went into one door. And uh, the only thing that separated this tiny room from the community long drop was just a few sheets of corrugated tin. And on a floor on a mattress was his mom. She had a broken leg. Dad was dead. And there was just his little sister. And... Uh, it was just, uh, I was gagging as I went in there, and I thought, God, where are you? And suddenly I remembered the words, you know, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. As I prayed into that situation, I've never been so aware of the presence of Jesus as I was that day. His disciples said, Jesus, what are you talking about? We've never seen you hungry or thirsty. He said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you helped me. I was in prison and you visited me. And I tell you the truth, when you do it for the least of these, you do it for me. That day I was ministering to them, but I was also ministering to Jesus. Jesus in me was ministering to the poor, but I was ministering to Jesus who makes his home with the poor and the marginalized as well. And we can bring change into that situation.